Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. Americans have no problem comprehending the horror of the Holocaust. I shouldn't say they don't have any problem, but they recognize that it is horrible, right? In fact, something I learned from the book by our next guest is that the U.S. has more Holocaust memorials than all of Germany and Poland. So we we see that evil. I would like you to imagine if Germany had, in addition to maybe its memorials to the lives lost in the Holocaust, memorials to the brave German soldiers that fought for Germany, not necessarily for the bad parts of Germany, but, you know, like they were just doing their countries, you know, fighting for the fatherland. What if those memorials were all over Germany? That would be weird. We would recognize that as weird. And yet, all over the South, there are these memorials to soldiers that fought to keep slavery the law of the land. That is the framework that our next guest brings to history. She is a philosopher, a Jewish woman from the South who has lived in Berlin for the last 30 years. Her name is Susan Niemann, and she is the author of Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. She joins us from Germany. Coming right up. Susan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I am very glad that you're here. I found the book fascinating. And there's a whole story about how the book even came to be. Can you talk about what inspired you to write it? Sure. There's a certain, there, there are two stories actually about how the book came to be. The first is that I've been writing this book, um, you know, unconsciously for uh, gosh, nearly 40 years since I first came to Berlin in 1982. And the first thing that struck me about Berlin uh, even back then, was the way in which the Nazi period was present in people's lives, uh, you know, present in the physical geography, present in the way that people talked about themselves, their parents, their families. And it immediately, all the way back then, made me ask, why don't we do this with our history in America? Why is it so, um, you know, we certainly don't do it with any of the disastrous parts of our history. We don't talk much about Vietnam. We don't talk about Hiroshima. And at the time, we weren't talking about slavery and its legacy and carryover long into the 20th century. So I've been thinking about those questions uh, really for a very long time. The immediate moment at which I decided to write a book was standing in my Berlin apartment and watching Barack Obama give the eulogy for the nine churchgoers who were massacred in Charleston in June of 2015. It was a moment at which even Nikki Haley, the Republican governor of South Carolina, listened to Obama's plea to take down the Confederate flag after the murderer had been seen posting himself, brandishing Confederate flags. So 
and Walmart declared they were not are no longer going to uh, sell Confederate memorabilia. Uh, it should be noticed that Steve Bannon at that moment in time called for people to wave their flags proudly, mm. but no one really Steve Bannon was at that moment. So uh, it, it wasn't something that people were paying attention to. It seemed as if the country was so shocked by this massacre that it was forced to look at, in a very broad and general way, the depth of white supremacy in American history and to face it. And I thought, well, maybe I can do something useful. I know a great deal about the ways in which the Germans faced up to their historical atrocities. Um, maybe I'll write a book about it. And of course, the world changed in five, <laughs> not five years between now and then. But uh, not only for the worse, not only for the worse. Um, one of the things that surprised me, I expected to get a lot of pushback in the U.S. even for comparing the crimes of the United States with crimes of Nazi Germany. And that's something that people were very harsh when I began the project, when I uh, went down to, um, I took some time off. I went to Mississippi, not because I thinks, um, you know, there's only racism in the South. Of course there isn't. It's just that racist history is clearer in the Deep South. People think much more about their history in general. So I, I spent a good half a year there. And at the time, people were quite upset about the comparison. When the book finally appeared last fall, um, September 2019, and I did a book tour through the States, I was amazed at how ready people were to hear the message. And I think that's the fault of uh, the man in the White House. That is, if it has brought, if this presidency has had any silver lining at all, and that's of course quite hard to say, it is that it has forced America to um, really face up to our, challenge the myth of American exceptionalism and to acknowledge that we can be as ugly and violent as anyone else. I got the, you know, sort of principal comparison of the book right away, of course. I mean, that's, it is I love the cover. The cover says learning from the Germans and there's a picture of a Confederate monument like it comes together pretty quickly. But obviously there's a lot of differences. And I don't just mean the differences that people might uh, push back on, like you're saying, like uh, people saying that slavery wasn't anything like the Holocaust. Right. But one of the similarities that really struck me between the two situations is that you you write about a period that I didn't know about, which is that Germany sort of had its own lost cause narrative about the Second yes. World War. You know, the lost cause narrative about the South is one that uh, hopefully people listening to the show know to be false. It's the idea that the, you know, the Civil War wasn't really about slavery. It was about states' rights. People never finished that sentence. <laughs> um, and it sort of valorizes valorizes the Civil War. And Germans had kind of a, a similar sort of narrative, right? Absolutely. In the first couple of decades after the war, of course, to some extent, it was an occupied country. 
And so, uh, you know, you couldn't indulge in the same kind of um, yeah, valorization of the, of the Confederacy that people sometimes do. But uh, underground, and not very far underground, the vast majority of West Germans in particular thought, uh, you know, well, maybe the business with the Jews went a little too far. But <laughs> <laughs> seriously. Um, but, you know, they basically, one of the interesting things that they, they did, and there's a new book that's just come out too late for me to quote it, unfortunately, in my book, uh, it's come out in German, so I can't recommend it uh, to you. But um, it describes the ways in which the West Germans took over virulent anti-communism instead of anti-Semitism. That it was there, but that was something you couldn't speak out loud. But the virulent anti-communism that had been the major a piece of, of Nazi ideology seamlessly went from the Nazis to the Federal Republic of Germany, particularly since the U.S. was fighting the Cold War. And they made it very clear that they were less interested in prosecuting old Nazis than they were in using them to help uh, undermine the Soviet Union. So that was a huge part of West German life all the way through 1984. The interesting thing is you say you didn't know about it. Hardly anyone outside of Germany does, uh, including many historians. It's uh, It's quite shocking. And I've been trying to figure out why that was. And I finally realized if there's one picture that non-Germans have of the years after the war, it's of Willy Brandt on his knees in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial. And we kind of assume, this was 1970, but still we kind of assume, oh yes, this is what the Germans must have felt when they realized uh, how horrible they had been towards uh, peoples in the East in particular. They must have gotten down on their knees and begged for atonement. What is not normally said, of course, because it's not something that Germans want to say, is Willy Brandt was called a traitor to the fatherland Mm. for leaving the country when the Nazis came and going into emigration as a social democrat. And his gesture of kneeling in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial was hated by more than half the country. So we we think of it as typical because we think that's what should have happened, mm. but it didn't. There's another interesting kind of parallel, too, which sort of exists in tension kind of with this idea of, you're right, not really valorizing World War II, but skipping over the, the really bad parts, let's say, right? Um, right. Which is that everyone was uh, kind of claiming that, well, their relatives didn't do anything, right? Like there was this sort of idea that, yes, you know, the Holocaust was evil, German uh, Nazis were bad, but 
there were lots of people who were just doing their jobs, who were just uh, in the army, um, serving their country, uh, not connected to the Nazis, right? Well, there were only 10% of, of the population uh, actually joined the right. Nazi party. But um, there were a lot of uh, what are called fellow travelers. I mean, if 90% of the country had really resisted them, uh, the war wouldn't have happened. <laughs> so, you know, and the claim of not having known what was going on has been demonstrably proven false. The interesting thing is it's not just true about the murders going on in the East, which were in part contribute, uh, part carried out by the ordinary soldiers. It's true that you had to join the Wehrmacht, the Nazi army, uh, unless you were doing something worse, like uh, being a guard in a concentration camp. There was a draft. You didn't have a choice about that. So many of the people who were in the ordinary army were not people who believed in Nazi ideology, but uh, they knew what was going on. They often wrote letters home about it, and they certainly told people, okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is, although they weren't famous, there were concentration camps all over Germany, um, not death camps per se, but thousands of small concentration camps. So uh, once you see a map of these things, it's very, you, you can't take seriously the idea that we didn't know what was going on. The really interesting thing, though, that that hit me when I realized how deep this comparison went uh, between West Germans after 45 and defenders of the lost cause both of them saw themselves as the war's worst victims. Mm-hmm. And this shocks people when I tell, you know, Americans or Britons that the Germans after 45 saw themselves as the war's worst victims. But for them, it was completely obvious. First of all, they'd lost the war. Secondly, their country had been, their cities had been destroyed. It was hardly a city that wasn't uh, really, um, you know, practically bombed and burnt to the ground. They lost a third of their territory. They lost 10% of their population were killed. Uh, many thousands more were prisoners of war. And on top of it, those Yankees were trying to tell them that the war was their fault. And it was at that moment when I realized that those ignorant, vulgar Yankees, which is how both the Germans looked at the Americans and, of course, how uh, you know, Southern Confederacy did. Um, the myth of the lost cause involves the idea that the Confederacy was more civilized, more gentle, more noble, more educated um, than those kind of utilitarian Yankees running factories and, you know, simply going after money. Of course, who was paying for the <laughs> civilized you know, situation in the South is something that they left out. Another thing that I found out when I was doing the research for this book, you know, all those uh, columns in on Southern plantation houses, all those Greek columns. Yeah. Right. So they're not holding anything up. They're put in uh, porticos, actually. Right. So they have no structural function. They're completely ideological. And the message that they were broadcasting was, 
Greek civilization was the foundation of democracy and of Western art and literature. And it was a slave-owning society, and so are we. Yeah, they, they weren't holding up anything but white supremacy, is what you're saying. But they were also making this connection. Explicitly. Exactly. And saying, hey, you know, if you, you know, if you're going to have great civilization, you need slavery. I want to get to some very explicit discussion of where we are right now in American history and what your book has to tell us. I was going to save that for a little while, but I have to jump in with one thing right now, which is that yesterday I saw an article about how the Trump administration has repealed the guidelines for building federal buildings. And now they want them to all be classical architecture. No. (laughs) You can curse, by the way. (laughs) Yes. Yes. On a a radio interview from a a station in California and and the the woman apologized to her listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're a podcast like people. People are used to it. I. I want to get to another a difference, though, here between um, what has happened in Germany and, and what is or has happened in America. When I tell people what changed the German self-narrative, the way they describe themselves in relation to the Holocaust, when I tell them that in your book, the one of the decisive events in German history to help push this change into being was a museum exhibit— Yes. People laugh. (laughs) And the idea is like, well, yeah, in Germany, they might be moved by a museum exhibit. It's hard to imagine Americans having a national conversation about something as esoteric as a museum exhibit. But do tell us that this was an incredibly important museum exhibit. Think about Brian Stevenson's amazing lynching memorial. Mm -hmm. I that has started a conversation. Mm. And if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely worth a trip to Montgomery, Alabama. It's extraordinary. I had the privilege of interviewing Brian Stevenson for this book, but it was before the museum was finished. And so I went back and saw it this fall. It's staggering. And the pictures don't do it justice. And it has gotten quite a lot of attention. So um, what's true, of course, is in Germany uh, an important museum exhibit. I mean, this exhibit was, uh, I'll say what it is in a second. Um, This exhibit was unusual. It's not that every museum exhibit gets a lot of uh, attention. This was an exhibit about the Wehrmacht, about the Nazi army, uh, with 18 million members, which means that everyone in Germany who was alive at the time, had a relative in the army, okay? So it had been before this exhibit, it had been easy to say, you know, it was just the SS. The SS was a smaller organization. It was a few bad apples. It wasn't the majority of the army. And what this exhibit did in 1995 was to prove to a general audience that doesn't read complicated history books, prove to a general audience that, no, the Wehrmacht itself was a criminal organization. Now, again, this was something that historians had known, but it wasn't um, 
it wasn't made clear to a broad general public. Now, about a million people saw this exhibit. This is in a population of, we're now nearing 80 million, so maybe it was like 78 million or something. So it was only a million people. One thing that is true in Germany is that we have a very, compared to the US, a very diverse media landscape. And things like that exhibit are the object of talk shows, um, you know, both in television and uh, on the radio, that there would be columns and columns of, uh, you know, in newspapers and magazines. It ran for four years. It was originally planning to be, um, you know, only a short exhibit in, in Hamburg to be, uh, you know, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. But as it turned out, it traveled throughout Germany. And, you know, I would hope if you had a traveling exhibit in the U.S. that was about such an important question, you would get, if not the same amount of discussion, certainly some of it. And in the end, it was discussed in Parliament because the question was, do we show the exhibit in Parliament or not? In the end, they voted against it. Mm. But um, the, the question of the exhibit was really no less than were the crimes of the Nazis the result of a few bad apples or a small minority of ideological fanatics or was pretty much the whole country implicated? And the answer was the whole country was implicated. You know, obviously you spend a lot of time in the book teasing out the differences and similarities uh, between the two situations. And I think there's a lot of... um, questioning about, you know, how how does that happen? How does the shift happen? It's not going to be a museum exhibit, most likely, in America. Um, it could be a massacre, right? I, I, that did start a conversation. Uh, it could be things getting to some sort of bottom, which one might say they are happening now. Like, I do think that the uh, Trump presidency is forcing a lot of well-meaning white people to examine what that means to be a well-meaning white person and to examine their own privilege. Uh, I know for me, the night of the election was a, a wake-up call of sorts, um, thinking about uh, just how racist and how sexist you know our country really is. I thought I knew, but I didn't. Right. Yes, and unfortunately, as I was saying to an American friend this afternoon, it's... Um, He's so much worse than we thought he would be yeah. that morning that we woke up. I mean, it's it's staggering uh, how much worse it is. And I thought it was terrible. Look, Charlottesville provided another moment that, uh, you know, I think was crucial that Americans began to learn something about the history of the lost cause, something about reconstruction, something about when the statues were put up, which is part of learning mm-hmm. why they were put up. So, um, I really do think something has been cracked open, perhaps starting at Charleston and, and then going through. I think that those are important points to make. What I want to ask you is... If you think there's a 
sort of fundamental kind of um, difference of self-image that I probably should specify as existing in white Americans, not just America as a whole, uh, and, and Germans, because, like, just as an example, one of the fascinating things I learned in your book was that Germans don't have a word for just monument, right? Or they use the word monument, but... But in general, they describe them more specifically, right? Yes, the word "think" is is in that in the right. word monument. I was thinking about how that difference between our languages, in and of itself, yeah. sort of explains something to me about Americans' inability to talk fully and explicitly about our history, because both the critics of monuments and the defenders of monuments both call them monuments. Do you know what I mean? Like, we can't right. even really call out exactly what we're talking about. Um, it, it, and you, you talk about language a lot in the yeah. book, about how important that is, important that we have the language to talk about these things. True. I, I mean, I wouldn't, see, I don't think we can let Americans off the hook on the question of language. I don't, I don't Oh, I'm not letting them off the hook. I want to say, um, I'm just trying to figure out, like, where the problems are. You know what I mean? Well, I'll tell you where I think the biggest problem is, and it's really it's staring us all in the face. Um, you know, privately owned television, uh, you know, particularly of the kind run by uh, Rudolf Murdoch, but, um, you know, or radio. I mean, there we – Germany has a real landscape of, uh, as I said, very diverse media – and it's state subsidized, and everybody pays a tax. And actually, I never get my news from German television, but I am so happy, and I I get most of my news from um, off the web, actually. But I am so happy to pay my tax <laughs> because it it means that I know, and it's it's not huge. It's around I don't know. It's not quite a hundred. Uh, dollars a year. But just imagine if every American, instead of those, all those NPR fundraising drives, if you just paid a tax to have a reputable, responsible, functioning um, uh, media. And Americans simply, it, you know, it's one of these things that, that seems uh, self-evident. Of course, media is private. Of course, media is uh, a profit-making enterprise. Mm. Uh, how else do you do it? You know, there are other ways to do it. I mean, just as we assume that healthcare is is fundamentally a profit-making exercise, but there are other ways to do it. And if you have good state radio and television, it means you have an educated mm-hmm. citizenry. I'm going to rescue my point and say that still points back to language. But to say educated, and then I also want to say that I was laughing as you were uh, talking about that because so often all the problems come back to capitalism. You So often. Like, there's, there's a theme here. <laughs> and while I'm on, I want to make a, you know, a, a statement. In 2016... Uh, when Hillary was running against Bernie for the nomination, she asked 
him, you know, what countries have the kind of programs that you're talking about? And he said, Denmark. And she looked at him witheringly Mm -hmm. and said, we're not Denmark. Interestingly enough, and I wrote an op-ed at the time, it was too late to help anything. Why in the world does Sanders not mention Germany, which is the fourth largest economy in the world? The German uh, social welfare state is so much more developed than anything that Sanders has been proposed that he is to the left. uh, Sorry, he would stand to the right of Angela Merkel, who is a conservative German politician, right? And it can't be that he doesn't know this. It's got to be that, you know, you can't use Germany (laughs) as a good example. I I think you're right. (laughs) (laughs) When I sort of go into... The, the sorts of resources people in this country simply expect no matter what party they're from. And it goes way beyond healthcare. There are all kinds of workers' rights. Again, ideas about what it means to live in a democracy, you need an educated citizenry. And that not only means that education is free, it also means that uh, education doesn't simply stop at the schools. So you consider what kinds of culture, what kinds of media are available. And yes, in short, so much of it does come back to capitalism. (laughs) It really does. Um, I want to take a quick break and come back and continue this discussion. Speaking of capitalism, we got to run some ads. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, and that is why Ritual left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some traditional multivitamins. And they're committed to showing you their nutrients and where they came from and why they chose it. They call it traceability. You could call it transparency because the thing about Ritual Vitamins, which I am sure you have seen on your Instagram, is that they're clear. Now, this shouldn't matter when you're taking a vitamin, how it looks. But it's one of the reasons I love taking Ritual is that it makes me a little bit happier in the morning because it's a cool-looking pill. It smells like mint because they have this little minty insert in the bottle. And I know I'm doing something good for my body. So it is both traceable and transparent, literally transparent. And it is transparent in the metaphorical sense as well. For obsessive label readers, Ritual uses vegan-certified, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients, and their sources are out there for the whole world to see because they believe you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. It's also designed to be gentle on an empty stomach. I can attest to this. Their delayed-release, no-nausea-designed capsule is going to allow you to do the vitamins first thing in the morning. You don't have to remember to do it after breakfast. And like I said, the mint-enhanced tab in every bottle makes taking your vitamins a minty, fresh experience. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Try it out. Satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off during your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. Postage rates have gone up again. Thankfully, stamps.com eases the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. With Stamps.com, you can save $0.05 off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates. That's the kind of savings that really add up, especially for small businesses. Plus, Stamps.com, as you might 
know from the name, is completely online, which saves you time. No more inconvenient trips to the post office. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It is that simple. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It is no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com, microphone, top of the homepage, enter friends. I want to return very quickly to the the German uh, social welfare state because that's another point in the book. There aren't many laughs in the book, let's just be honest, but I did chuckle when you just were describing the ways in which um, Germans think about the American system. Like the idea that you would have, um, there's, you tell an anecdote that I guess someone proposed that uh, sick days and vacation days be combined somehow, right? Right. That somebody who was, so you don't have a fixed number of sick days in uh <laughs> In Germany, people look at you when you mention this as if you're crazy. <laughs> well, what if somebody's sick? This is fun, strikes people as fundamentally yeah. unjust. It is. It is and unjust. The, <laughs> and the head of the most pro-business party, no, somebody proposed for somebody who was chronically ill. And if you're chronically ill, you your doctor sends a note to your employer and you got sick leave for months. Um, that's just how it is. That's what strikes everyone as fair. And it was proposed that, um, you know, perhaps because uh, Germans also have generous vacation pay, it's almost every job, it's a month plus some federal holidays as well. So uh, it's a month's paid vacation for everyone. Some jobs uh, have six weeks. Uh, well, I mean, quite a lot of jobs have six weeks, but everybody gets four weeks paid vacation. That's also considered to be uh, a matter of justice. And someone proposed, well, if somebody's sick for months and months and months, maybe we should take away some of their vacation time and the head of the most pro-business party was you know was outraged and said no sick is sick and vacation is vacation and those two completely different categories what a communist and you can't, uh, <laughs> like, weigh them off. what a how anti-business no i i'm i'm kidding um so i want to return to this idea that having an educated citizenry is a fundamental uh, building block of a true democracy and um, equality and having the ability to do the kind of self-reflection uh, that the Germans have have been able to engage in, which is to push back a little because you yourself spend a lot of time wondering in the book about how it is that individuals change their minds or come to recognize the need for reconciliation. And I think you do wind up saying that education can't can't be the answer, that telling people what really happened isn't necessarily going to change any minds. Do I say that? I don't think I do. Oh, okay. I, I guess I've, I found um, maybe maybe I'm just misinterpreting, but there is a section in the book where you talk about the purpose of these monuments. Yeah. And it's not to educate, right? 
Well, okay, okay, I see that some monuments like preserving the concentration right. camps. That's right. I do talk about the question of, you know, the idea that a visit to a concentration camp is immediately going to turn everyone into an anti-fascist. Of course, people do visit concentration camps, uh, you know, people who are Nazis and say, ah, oh, this was great. I mean, that does happen. You know, I'm thinking again, I want to go back to um, Brian Stevenson's wonderful lynching memorial. Uh, Stevenson, by the way, said he was very influenced by what he saw in Germany. Um, so Stevenson is the only uh, American, you know, of national stature who has, uh, who has talked about the ways in which we can learn from the Germans in exploring our violent history. I, it would be interesting to see, I cannot imagine someone, but I'm sure there are, I'm sure that people, although Stevenson's monument has, you know, if you go there, you see people in tears. I was in tears. There's a huge sense of reverence that is a testimony to just what a great piece of art that is. But I'm sure, you know, Klansmen or white nationalists could go to that monument with a hostile attitude and say, you know, well, good, let's lynch a few more. That's theoretically possible. Um, happened last spring or last summer with the um, with the Emmett Till Memorial being shot up for the sixth or seventh time. But that doesn't mean that I think education I, I, is pointless. Right. I wouldn't say education is pointless. I guess my the sense I got from from reading the book, and I'm happy to hear that I may have been overly pessimistic in what the sense that I got, is that you cannot educate someone out of bigotry. And you also make a point several times to saying, you know, it's not an illiterate mob that brought Hitler to power, that education isn't the difference between someone who's a bigot and someone who isn't. Absolutely. And we should note, we, we like to think of the Trump supporters, as he once said, I love mm. the poorly educated. Uh, well, like goes to like, but um, uh, it's, a, we, it, it's a comforting mistake to think that all his voters are uneducated. Many of them are not. They simply see an advantage in his tax cuts in the same way that uh, the German upper middle class thought Hitler would take care of the communists for them and, you know, put business back on the road. So there are parallels there too. Look, it, it all depends on the kind of education. If you're simply talking about, um, you know, let's say a normal course of education that doesn't require people to learn to think for themselves, to think about moral and political questions, in their own lives, in the lives of their uh, families, in their countries. And of course, many forms of education don't require that at all. If you don't have that, 
then it's kind of a matter of luck, whether you, it's not just a matter of luck. I mean, people have been changed simply by meeting people. One of the more interesting um, common threads among the people I interviewed in the Deep South who were active in some kind of work for racial reconciliation, the white people, they had all traveled to other countries. Uh, and worked in other countries. I don't just mean taking a trip. And simply realizing that the way things are structured in the place that you happen to have grown up uh, is not the way the whole world is. That can be enormously enlightening for people. It does seem like you you are looking for the ways and the reasons for which people wind up becoming anti-racist, right? Like that's a question that that is a question that animates the book and I was just struck by I don't I don't know if there I don't know if you have an answer, I don't know if there is an answer. But I think at one point you say, you know, I always seek to understand what influences people to stand up for what's right, but in the end there may no be may not be an explanation. Is that how you f- still feel? Yeah, and in the sense that this is something uh, that uh, both the philosopher Immanuel Kant, but also Hannah Arendt, who in many ways um, followed him, uh, both said there is an element of mystery in every moral, major moral decision. What makes someone risk someone something big? to stand up against injustice. And, you know, precisely because we're free to do that all the time, we often or perhaps usually don't, um, simply because it takes too much effort, simply because we get caught up in our daily tasks, and sometimes simply because we're we're afraid. Um, So people who manage to in in extreme situations, um, Freedom Summer in Mississippi or the resistance to uh, Nazi Germany, people who really are prepared to risk their lives to stand up for justice. Um, there's there is an element of mystery, and I've 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 written about heroes, and I've actually tried to find people. Uh, and ask them, even people who took minor heroic uh, actions. And I haven't ever gotten a clear answer from anyone. about. And and what I think that means is we're looking for the wrong answer. Like, if you, it's as if you were looking for a cause. Oh, well, I read this book, or I heard this person speak, or I had a wonderful teacher who made me do it. Well, none of those things make you do anything because it's free action, okay, to stand up uh, on the side of justice. And that's why I think looking for a, uh, that kind of causal explanation is probably a mistake. I think those minor heroics are actually very important. <laughs> I, I only use the word minor in comparison to people who actually... Oh. Oh, certainly. To certainly. Die for something. But one of the things I like about your book is pointing out um, that those smaller or re- let's say relatively smaller, they're not 
actually small, but the less life-endangering uh, heroics, let's say, are very, very important. Uh, and one of the most powerful sort of quotes I got from the book, and I've been sharing this with friends since I read it, was an observation um, you record from the director of the Buchenwald Memorial, who says, you know, people always ask yes. themselves, like, what will you have done at the height of the Holocaust? But that's the wrong question. Exactly. The question you should ask yourself is, what would I have done in 1932 or 33? Precisely. Or 34, 35. Um, right. Exactly. Because even the Nazis uh, took quite a long time to be the Nazis. People say you can read it all in Mein Kampf. Well, sort of, although very few people read it. Um, it's a long and badly written book. I haven't even. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as unfortunately we can see in our own times right now in the United States, it's smallish creeping steps that go towards authoritarianism that go towards racism, that go towards violence. And all leaders test the waters, you know. How much pushback will I get? I mean, even the Nazis, for example, when they um, tried to kill people with uh, Down syndrome or other uh, kinds of disabilities, there, these are were German citizens. There was quite uh, an outcry among the clergy, among various people's families, and so they stopped. You know, um, had there been an outcry about uh, other things, they might well have stopped. So, so yeah, what we need to think is, of course, we're not in 1939, where the leader of our country has started the world's bloodiest war. We're not there. But are we uh, somewhere where he is testing the waters to see just exactly how much resistance he will get, get and how many people throw up their hands to say there's nothing we can do about it? It's very tempting at this moment in time to throw up one's hands. I uh, have that temptation myself, but it's um, it's not one we dare give into. And that leads me to ask you about the monument at Rosenstrasse, which you speak about as kind of an alternative way to think about those kinds of resistance that maybe we can have today. Do you want to tell us about it? I will. It's it's a beautiful monument. It's not nearly as well known as uh, the most famous monument. So in February 1943, the Nazis had not decided what they were going to do to uh, Jews who were married to Germans. That is, they had been fired from their jobs. They had, uh, you know, had very little rations. They weren't allowed to do much of anything, but if their spouses had resisted the pressure to divorce them, they weren't deported. So they again decided to have a trial run in 1943, 
and see whether there would be resistance to their deporting 400 Jewish men who had uh, so far been kept safe by their non-Jewish wives. And the women, they, they were rounded up at work. And when the women found out where they were being held, many of them didn't, most of them didn't know each other. They spontaneously came to this center where they were being held at the Rosenstrasse and said, give us our men back. And they stayed for uh, 12 days with Gestapo guns trained on them and said, you know, go ahead, shoot us. It's okay. We're, but we're not leaving until you give us our men back. And the men were given back and everybody, all of those people survived the war. And there's a very beautiful, very moving monument there, which suggests that resistance was possible even at the most uh, awful totalitarian moment in the war resistance was still possible. Successful resistance was still possible. But we honestly, we're not there yet. We're not at 1943. Right. We're, you know, we're in a place where, I mean, what is, what is so difficult and hard, uh, speak for myself, uh, I, but I know I'm speaking for many other people, I followed the impeachment hearings in the House very, very closely. I thought the Democrats laid out an extraordinarily well-articulated case. And the frustration about the fact that it seems not to matter is, you know, that, that things like truth and evidence and right and wrong seem not to matter. Um you know, is is terribly, terribly hard. But what if, you know, we had managed to organize demonstrations in the in the districts of all the Republican senators? People didn't try that, you know. I think that's why I brought up the. the it is true that the Rosenstrasse. Uh, demonstration took place a little you know, further into the you are risking your life by doing something part of resistance. But I just feel like I got so much out of that story, the importance you placed on people needing to know that resistance is possible, that nonviolence resistance can be successful. That there is not a need to be a true, like, giving your life for something hero. Like, <laughs> We don't need to fetishize heroics. And if we fetishize heroics, really high-level heroics, we kind of create a barrier to the more everyday kinds of resistance, I think. Speaking uh, from my heart, I actually once wrote a book arguing just that. It's called Moral Clarity. Um, <laughs> so I entirely agree with you. It just as a matter of fact, the women in the Rosenstrasse right. were risking their lives. Right. Well, but let's get let's get back to the fact that we are not in 42 or 43 here in America. And it sounds like you think we're somewhere past 32 or 33, but not 42 or 43. And in this idea of having a resistance that might look like having demonstrations in Republican districts, 
I mean, it sounds like you and I are very much on the same page, too, about this place of um, knowing you have to have hope and having it be very, very difficult to kindle that hope. Did you watch or hear anything about the State of the Union this week? You know, I cannot actually stand to watch him for more than a So I... I read, you know, I'm, uh, I read, uh, snippets of it and I suppose I'll look at the whole speech tonight, uh, when I'm done. Well, I, I watched some of it. I actually had to turn it off as well. And I did gather that he did some of his greatest hits as far as demonizing, immigrants and talking in very grisly terms about the supposed violence that white people are at risk for. And um, and then at the end of the speech, I was I had it on mute in the background, actually, and I saw Nancy Pelosi tear up the yes. copy of the speech that she got. And perhaps you don't know this. Perhaps this has not made it to Germany, but that has caused incredible amount of fuss here. You know, like, I did like, just see that. I mean, I, I haven't read all the news today, but... Um, and I, having just finished your book and yeah. watching that, I was like, well, that was the fucking least she could do. You uh, know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I just, I mean, the, I guess I'm just, I'm speaking, I want to speak something into existence or something, but I cannot get over how a lot of Americans, even good liberal white Americans, are behaving as though these are normal times. Right. Exactly. And that's the lesson I got from your book, is that in looking to Germany, like, we cannot behave as though these are normal times. I agree with you entirely. And I I actually did the one person who was singing this song for a long time, although I haven't heard from him lately, but maybe I've been looking in the uh, right places, the the columnist Chauncey De Vega, who writes for Salon.com, mm-hmm. uh, I he's you know he was emphasizing that and influencing people, uh, sorry, interviewing people about fascism practically from the beginning. And I did a couple of interviews with him. Um, but yes, from the very beginning. I was convinced this is not a normal, um, you know, political disagreement. The awful thing is I recently watched Ken Burns' 18-hour series on the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and I have Nixon appealing <laughs> compared to what we have. <laughs> well, he was, he, I will say this, uh, he was very intelligent uh, man, uh, and had a degree of self-awareness right. that is kind of remarkable. I don't know if you've ever read Gary Will's um, book about him, but yes. it paints a picture of a man who it's not quite sympathetic. <laughs> well, I think Will's himself is sympathetic, um, but he was almost uh, paralyzed by self-doubt in some ways. Like he really was insecure and really thought a lot about how he came off, which obviously does constrain your actions sometimes, right? (laughs) And that is not something that our current president is burdened by. 
Um, so if these are not normal times and if we need to figure out some ways to not go along, like you mentioned demonstrations in people's uh, district, Republican districts. Do you have any other thoughts? Yes, I do. Um, and I mean, it's too late for the demonstrations in Republican districts. That's yes. what should have happened um, as, uh, you know, impeachment was was happening. There's only one thing that matters between now and November, and that is voter registration, fighting voter suppression, fighting, as I said to my own daughter a couple of nights ago, resignation is the most effective form of voter suppression that there is, Mm. you know, and uh, as as much as as uh, you know, we can, especially given Iowa. I mean, I'm I'm stunned by uh, what happened or didn't happen in Iowa. Um, so it's so easy to say it doesn't matter one or the other. The in one or another way, your vote will not count. Uh, the only thing that matters right now is getting out to vote, uh, preparing to vote, making sure that minorities, poor people, young people are uh, serious about voting. And one idea that I've had that I started ending uh, my, my English speaking talks about was reminding people about Freedom Summer, which unfortunately... Uh, unless you're as old as I am, a lot of people don't learn. Freedom Summer was invented by the very great community organizer, Bob Moses, who had uh, left, he was teaching and studying philosophy at Harvard, African-American from New York, um, and he left a very comfortable position to join the civil rights movement in the deep South in Mississippi, which he called the heart of the iceberg and insisted that rather than desegregating lunch counters or uh, bus stations, that the most important thing was registering people to vote. Mm -hmm. So down there uh, as uh, working for one of the founders of what was called SNCC at the time, uh, student nonviolent coordinating committee, And all that had happened in the first two years of working and trying to help people, uh, African-Americans register to vote, is that people had actually gotten killed for trying to vote. Mm -hmm. And he made a decision that getting a thousand white students from the North to come down to Mississippi and help register to vote and teach people how to pass these crazy voters tests that they had at the time, uh, directed specifically at Afro-Americans, that if a thousand white people came down to Mississippi, uh, it would turn national attention on the problem. And the thought was the Klan would not dare to lay hands on them and the press would make the rest of the country aware of the problem and keep them safe. That's all you need. That's, that's it. Okay. But I did. So I wanted to do with 
was, you know, sort of end with this ringing, because I think it's really important to remember our heroes and to remember that two 20-year-olds and a 25-year-old died 50 years ago for other people's right to vote. And when you read about their story, and I tell it in the book, but there are other places to read it as well, I think it becomes almost incomprehensible not to vote, you know, simply because one is discouraged or resigned or thinks it won't matter. I think there needs to be a national drive in the name of Cheney Goodman and Schroener for the next, I guess it's, we've got eight months still, mm. um, to make sure that every single young person uh, in particular is registered to vote and go, gets out there on election day. And I will just add that Crooked Media has partnered with Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight organization. So if people are looking for a place to donate or a place to learn how to take action, that's a, that's a really good place to do it. Excellent. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And that is almost it for the show. I have a little context to offer, and that is the context in which I read a huge chunk of this book. I read a huge chunk of Susan's book while I was staying in a villa on the property of the Trump National Golf Course in Jupiter, Florida. So I was reading this book at one point when I was sipping coffee out of a coffee cup with the Trump logo on it. I was reading this book when we went to lunch and there was Trump branded into the top of a hamburger bun. You may feel free to judge me for having gone to see my family at this place. I certainly am judging me. I can explain the reasons I decided to go. You can guess at them. I think the most important thing I have to share about it is that I realized I couldn't go again. I was hesitant to share this information with anyone, much less an entire podcasting audience. But I also felt like it's important to share the times when we get things wrong. And I think I got it wrong. Because then, you know, next time we might get it right. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>